or of magic mushrooms per se, but although this is kind of a big group of different species and it's not just one species that produces this compound itself, the psilocybin is broken down within our bodies from its prodrug form to psilocin, which is the active form and it's much more esoteric and it's most of the clinical effects. When purified, the psilocybin itself is usually like a white and like crystal, whereas psilocin um, is an oil. But that, that's, these aren't typically readily available, as most people access them through the mushrooms themselves. Um, the psilocybin is synthesized in many, many of these mushrooms and um, through a complex pathway that I'm going to spare everyone the details of. But Albert Hoffman um, also developed his own biosynthetic process, which was a little bit different from how it's synthesized endogenously. Um, essentially, once drug is absorbed, as I described, it's broken down um, into its active form, which is which occurs through dephosphorylation of one of the side chains into the active form of psilocin. Psilocin exerts its typical effects in the brain, and after um, it's been created, is broken down itself primarily through phase two degradation, that is through glucuronidation, but there is some phase one that is oxidation um, processes that help convert the inactive water-soluble forms that enable its excretion. From a pharmacologic standpoint, psilocybin is thought to maybe have some of its own minor activity. However, it's a psilocin that when it crosses into the brain, exerts most of the effects. From a receptor standpoint, the primary receptors that we are interested in are the serotonergic 2A, 2B receptors, as well as um, 1A and 1B. It does have some effect at um, the type 7 serotonergic receptor, as well as some histaminergic um, and dopaminergic effects at the D3 receptor, as well as some um, alpha adrenergic effects as well, although these are all much less prominent than its serotonergic effects. And the psychoactive effects themselves are mediated through specific partial agonism of the 5-HT2A receptor. And blockade of this receptor has been found to inhibit the um, production of the visual hallucinations and illusions and other psychedelic type effects that people um, often use these um, compounds for. It also inhibits some of the serotonergic um, transporter channels as well, leading to increased serotonin concentrations in the space between the two neurons that have been synaptic clapped. And although it's primarily used for its effect on memory learning and the different perceptual effects that um, are frequently associated with its use, it does have effects on other body systems as well, including the cardiovascular system, whereby it can mediate tachycardia, some gastrointestinal effects, as well as affecting some other uh, endocrine processes as well, including oxytocin and prolactin and adrenal cortical hormone release as well. A lot of the effects um, that are beneficial from, that are perceived to be beneficial from psilocybin and other serotonergic agonists are thought to be mediated by the 5-HT1A receptors. And these are primarily found on the presynaptic sides of multiple serotonergic neurons in the brain, including the dorsal raphe nucleus and the median raphe nucleus. And although this is very nitty gritty about how the, how the drugs work, um, it's these neurons which are, are perceived to be important for the way that our brain integrates different sensory functions in that when there's activation of the 5-HT1A receptor on the presynaptic neurons, it causes disintegration 
of the typical uh, processes in which our brain functions. And this is what's found to have many of the possible beneficial effects, including allowing areas of the brain that might not talk to one another because of basically channels that are normally established break down and enabling different regions of the brain to communicate um, and was the individual who's under the influence of the psilocybin to have perceptions and different thoughts that might not otherwise occur. From a um, other receptor standpoint, there is an effect on the dopaminergic type 3 receptors, although this is a mystery. And it's interesting that although in patients who have schizophrenia and other psychotic type symptoms, which are mediated by a dopamine receptor um, overactivation, inhibition of this receptor in the circumstances where patients um, are under the influence of psilocybin doesn't inhibit the typical psychedelic type effects that um, are being perceived. There, it's interesting that although that these drugs can be very potent when um, consumed, there's a rapid process called tachyphylaxis, which is essentially a, um, a biologic effect where the activation of these receptors causes downregulation in their production. So individuals who use, who engage in the use of psilocybin um, have downregulation of the 5-HT2A receptor specifically, which leads to deep, which would effectively inhibit or at least decrease the effectiveness of subsequent dosings, both in the same visit per se or use, or down the road in the next subsequent days. And it's interesting that it can take up to one to four weeks, depending on the individual, to have full return of baseline serotonergic receptor function. Usually the effects of the psychedelics themselves too, including psilocybin, are dose dependent. And there's both effects that are typical low dose and high dose. And the use clinically can vary depending on the effects that are desired. Low doses are typically uh, perceived to be mildly sedating and enhance your visual acuity. Whereas higher doses are associated with, them with much more visually, visual stimulation and visual distortions as well. These drugs are also associated to um, have uh, a quote-unquote body type high, which has been reported to be um, a kind of a tingling sensation and a glowing weightlessness as well. And although these are, these are the effects that are typically um, desired when people use them, um, there's also adverse effects that people can be, uh, can, are, can be susceptible to, including tachycardia, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, and some emotional lability. Nausea is one of the more common symptoms that's associated with the psilocybin use, and all, but it's unclear if this is specifically related to the drug itself or if it's related to how people typically consume it from the ground up mushroom components themselves. On a longer term scale, um, there, are, there are reports of individuals who use psychedelics and suffer uh, an under a, a disorder called hallucinogen persistent perception disorder, which essentially is a process where individuals who have had psychedelic experiences at one time have recurrent um, intrusive flashbacks, which can occur even in the absence of use of psychedelic compounds at a later time. There are reports of seizures. Uh, this is typically associated with concurrent tramadol use, uh, as it's not thought that the drug itself um, in, in its use alone would induce seizures themselves, and there's also some theoretical risk of cardiovascular damage related to the serotonergic organism and the cardiac leaflets. However, this is more theoretical than has actually been 
described widespread threat use, and there are a few reports here and there of it. From, from a use standpoint, there it, it's a lot of initially the psychedelics, including the psilocybin mushroom, were used to study underlying psychiatric diseases, including schizophrenia. And although the, this these xenobiotics themselves can induce uh, effects which have psychotic-like symptoms, especially in, in very high doses, it's interesting that some, some newer studies have found no correlation between psychedelic use and mental illness, and in, uh, and in individuals who had um, depression or suicide, suicidal thoughts, they were actually less likely down the road to have uh, attempted suicide. Other drugs which can interact with the psilocybin include alcohol, uh, gamma hydroxybutyric acid, also known as GHB and benzos. These have an inhibitory effect on the um, positive symptoms that, and that is positive as in like new type symptoms that, that wouldn't otherwise be present um, from use regarding regarding use, including the alcohol would kind of sedate you, and benzos can also be sedating as well and inhibit effects. Cannabis and amphetamines are also occasionally used along with the psilocybin for additional effects by users, including relaxation for cannabis, but amphetamines can be perceived to have negative associations due to uh, causing people to fall into what are known as thought loops, where essentially people cannot escape a repetitive circular idea. Historically, although we touched upon this initially, the uh, psilocybin is a derivative, a compound derivative that was found in what are known as inocybe species. Um, and these evolved essentially 20 million years ago, and they're found widespread throughout the entire world, including Australia, the United States, Canada, Mexico, and much of Europe. There's also reports of it being found in different areas of Africa as well, and it's been, it's been um, attributed to being used historically both by individuals in the Sahara Desert, Desert thousands of years ago, as well as there's reports of Egyptians using them as well due to um, essentially um, murals on the walls and the, and the pyramids. They are more frequently used by Central American and South American shamans for ritual, ritualistic um, events. And this is where some of the, historically, where they were initially discovered and led to, its, led to Albert Hoffman down the road synthesizing it from different individuals who are uh, ethnomycologists, including George Wasson and some other, under, other individuals who found them initially in the 1950s. And it was Humphrey Osmond in the 1950s who coined the term psychedelic related to its mind manifesting effects. And it was after this discovery and its the synthesis by Albert Hoffman that led to the um, clinical utility during the 1960s including trying to study underlying mental states, alcoholism, and uh, schizophrenic scores when it comes to underlying psychotherapy. And although it is still illegal in the United States and many other countries, there are exemptions in religious circumstances where it can be used. Um, but over the last few decades, there have been more and more studies which are gaining approval in the United States to study its effects, because not only has it been found to have anxiety inhibiting effects and decreases um, effects of thoughts of suicidality, but it's also thought to have, have very low risk of harm as well. And it is the, these perceived beneficial effects which have led to many of the studies 
including um, treatment-resistant depression, late-stage cancer, generic alcoholism, um, as well as tobacco use as well. And at this point, I'm going to cede the floor over to other presenter so mm -hmm. can present some of bigger details about these studies themselves. Yeah, thanks, Matt. That's a, a good background and of the history, which is interesting, was synthesized by Albert Hoffman, the same person who stumbled across um, LSD. Um, and it was actually marketed briefly as endocyanobin as sort of a psych psychotherapeutic agent before it was put on DEA class one substance when the DEA system came out. Um, I'm going to go and talk about, before we get into some of those articles and to some of the different things it was used for, uh, I have another article I pulled up. Um, it's called Perceived Harm, Motivations for Use and Subjective Experiences of Recreational Use. So this isn't medicinal, this is recreational. This is a group out of the uh, United Kingdom who did this study. It was kind of more of a survey study. They go through the usual background about how this is a, you know, sometimes used but not significantly used um, hallucinogenic substance, although they cite maybe as many as 17% of the 18 to 25 year olds may have claimed use at one point or another. And they basically, you know, recruited through mostly interest groups and online resources a bunch of people to answer a bunch of survey questions for them about their use and perceptions. Um, they were looking, you know, did people think these were safe and where they would list them on a scale of 10 other substances that are misused as far as its safety. Um, they wanted to know anyone who did use it, what their effects were, and they had like six different things they were looking for. Uh, and then reasons why people might use it, and I don't think it was anything unusual there. Most people were using it to mostly, if for lack of a better word, get high. Basically, they were able to recruit 73 people who acknowledged that they were magic mushroom users and um, 78 people who had, at least by their own uh, accord, said they never used it, and they put them through all of these um, tests and s survey things. And basically, when they had to rate these on a scale, just to kind of cut to the main thing, this was like the lowest scale. Users who used it rated it the lowest of the 10 substances of misuse. So things that they rated as much higher risk, no surprise, included things like heroin, cocaine, alcohol, tobacco, GHB, ecstasy, LSD, and even cannabis was rated as more risky amongst people who used it. Amongst people who had never used it, all of those things were rated as more risky except cannabis. The people who never used it felt that cannabis was safer than magic mushrooms to use. So that's sort of the perceived harm in the general population as far as which drugs they consider use or not use. Um, you know, they tried to break out their motivations for use. There's, it was kind of all over the place. Some of them used it to be more social. Some of it used to enhance their mood. Some of them used it for, you know, a greater self-awareness. Um, but it was sort of no one clear-cut uh, reason that they used it. Uh, and some people used it for dancing. I mean, it was a variety of reasons that were put down in this survey. Um, and the reactions were basically that most people tolerated it pretty well, didn't really seem to have adverse reactions, and felt it was at least on a risk or a low risk, which sort of bears out the scientific studies where they actually gave it to people, which we're about to go into. 
And we're going to cover three topics, which is often cited, um, um, where they can be used. We'll talk about alcohol dependence uh, treatment. We'll talk about uh, major depression, which the biggest article of which came out just recently in JAMA. And lastly, uh, the anxiety of end-of-life situations with terminal cancer. So the first one I think we'd like to review is the a proof of concept study. So understand this is a preliminary study on alcohol uh, dependence. And Courtney, I am going to turn it over to you to tell us about that one. Great. Thanks, Zane. So yeah, so this is a proof of concept study um, that targets psilocybin-assisted treatment for alcohol dependence. And uh, as you said, it's out of the Journal of Psychopharmacology in 2015. And uh, the article starts uh, with an introduction just and uh, um, a brief description on the history of the use of LSD and other classic hallucinogens on the treatment of addiction predominantly in the 1950s through 70s. But for many conditions uh, they've applied this to, um, a lot of it is anecdotal or it's been done sort of in a, a therapy setting or a clinic setting. Um, evaluating existential distress, particularly in patients that are dying and uh, patients that are experiencing uh, a lot of pain. Um, a recent meta-analysis actually examined LSD treatment of alcoholism, and that was 325 patients who received treatment with LSD uh, with a control of 211 and a post-treatment follow-up that ranged from 1 to 12 months. And that had an odds ratio of 1.96 in terms of improvement, which favored LSD. But that was specifically for mood. Uh, additionally, a recent pilot study also looked at uh, LSD as an adjunct to smoking cessation with 80% abstinence at six months. Uh, in terms of the proposed mechanisms uh, that they put forth in this paper, uh, as Matt started to allude to, is that the effects of the classic hallucinogens uh, tend to depend on the serotonergic receptor activity. In particular, um, they uh, delve into a bit of the 5-H2A, uh, 5-HT2A, um, and LSD's specific ability to downregulate them. Um, they go on to say that increased binding is related to increased depression, neuroticism, borderline uh, personality disorder, and it really has a less clear relationship to alcoholism through increased in, uh, sorry, though increased impulsivity has actually been implicated in this. Um, serotonergic antagonists uh, have been shown to suppress alcohol consumption in rats, although two big trials sort of failed to demonstrate any beneficial effect in humans for that. Um, and then they also talk about some other animal studies, preclinical um, evidence that suggests changes in intracellular signaling pathways, and that results, of course, in cellular structure and synapse changes. Um, and additionally, some hallucinogens actually have been shown to increase levels of BDNF, which, as we know, is really important uh, to cellular signaling and is important in this case because it actually appears to be inversely related to alcohol consumption. Um, so the first uh, sections of the paper sort of go through just a little bit of the background and the proposed mechanisms. And then they go on to say uh, how they're actually going to address uh, LSD therapy in terms of uh, alcohol dependence and what they're doing is proposing to use a psychological model of psychedelic treatment um, and their proposal essentially is to enhance the process of psychodynamic psychotherapy by making unconscious material more accessible that's how they phrase this and that results in a concept of what they call singular transformative experience 
that hopefully should lead to a long-lasting behavioral change. So overall, the study is aiming to quantify the psychoactive effects, of course, and the tolerability of the oral psilocybin uh, in alcohol-dependent patients, and then really to evaluate the outcomes during psychosocial treatment, during uh, interventional therapy with LSD, and then after all of this treatment to see what's happened. Um, so just briefly to go through the methods, this is a small study, a single group within subjects design, meaning that everyone has uh, uh, consecutive sort of interventions at different time points. Um, patients received 12 weeks uh, of 14 session interventions. Two were psilocybin sessions, the first of which happened after four weeks of psychosocial treatment, which will be important by the end of the paper. And then this second uh, psilocybin treatment session came after eight weeks. And then the outcome data was collected for a total of 36 weeks. Uh, these participants were from the community. They were recruited by local media flyers uh, and advertisements. And on average, their ages sort of spanned from 25 to 65. They had to meet criteria for alcohol dependence, which meant at least two days of heavy drinking days in the past 30 days and not currently undergoing alcohol treatment. They were excluded for uh, medical and psychiatric conditions in themselves and actually also a family history, particularly of schizophrenia, uh, also borderline personality disorder, suicide, other drug dependence, and a history of using hallucinogens more than 10 times or use of hallucinogens in the past 30 days. Um, they're also required to be abstinent and not in withdrawal at the time of the psilocybin sessions. And that was evaluated with vital signs in interviewing prior to these, uh, them starting therapy. The first 12 uh, sessions, seven were uh, motivational enhancement therapy, which essentially uh, was described as motivational interviewing. Three of them were preparatory sessions and two of them were debriefing sessions. So those comprised all 12 of the psychosocial uh, sessions within the study. The four sessions uh, we just said were before the first psilocybin session. There were another four between the first and the second intervention. And then there were four after the second uh, psilocybin intervention. Uh, in terms of how they administered this, they actually set up a living room environment um, to make the area comfortable and calming. Uh, the participants were placed in headphones with specific music um, to sort of uh, remove any confounders and make the environment as uh, standard as possible. Weight-based dosing was utilized and it was ingested as a single capsule and then after that, they were observed for eight hours. There were two therapists in the room who offered supportive, sort of non-directed uh, interactions. And there were medications available in the event that there was one of the adverse events Matt had mentioned, something like nausea, even hypertension, or psychosis. Um, after seven hours, uh, uh, after receiving the psilocybin capsule, they completed uh, several questionnaires and a mental status exam. Um, and then just in terms of the dosing, the first session volunteers received uh, 0.3 mg per kg. And then if they tolerated that, uh, they were given 0.4 mg per kg for the second session. There's one caveat to that, that if someone had a, a complete uh, sort of existential response during the first session, they would keep it at the 0.3 mg per kg because uh, it was suggested that um, that was sort of their max dosing. They didn't need to go any further than that. Uh, in terms of the assessments, 
uh, prior to this, there was a lot of medical screening, physicals, EKGs, labs. Um, they went so far as to uh, collect uh, menstrual calendar cycles for the women, as well as an HCG to ensure that no one was pregnant, and they completed a CWA for any evidence of alcohol withdrawal, along with vital signs prior to initiation of the therapeutic sessions with psilocybin. Uh, the interesting part about this paper is that uh, there's a large amount of the data that is self-reported by the participants on uh, surveys and questionnaires um, that have been used for decades for uh, motivational interviewing, for cognitive behavioral therapy, and particularly in psychedelic research. Um, so there is a self-reported scale that's done at seven hours as well as monitored ratings throughout the entire session. There is something called an intensity subscale uh, of the hallucinogenic rating scale, which is a global measure of intensity of the drug experience. There is something called the five-dimensional altered states of consciousness scale, which is a 94-item scale giving five primary dimensions, uh, which I will just comment on because they are quite interesting. One is oceanic boundlessness. One is dread of ego dissolution, visionary restructuralization, auditory alterations and altered vigilance, and then a states of consciousness uh, scale, which is 100 items, and that's, uh, that includes 43 items of the Fank Richards Mystical Experience Questionnaire, the MEQ. Um, there's also uh, several questions about addiction, and then the monitors that are present in the room are also doing their own rating forms uh, to rate behavior during the sessions. Uh, in terms of the substance abuse evaluation, uh, they use a timeline follow-back survey to assess drinking behavior at baseline and then at each week time point during the follow-up. Heavy drinking days uh, were considered five plus drinks if male and four plus drinks if female. They split the drinking days into heavy drinking days as well as normal drinking days where that was uh, of any amount of alcohol. And then there is something called a short inventory of problems that's used to measure the, quote, consequences of alcohol use. And then uh, blood alcohol is measured at each visit. And that was uh, mostly for safety, they commented, rather than for outcomes. Um, there are at least five, six plus other um, scales that were used, change of readiness scale, alcohol abstinence scale, craving scales, mood scales. Um, and then just multiple other self-reported measures uh, to try to identify persisting psychological effects. But um, they didn't go in to discuss every single um, uh, survey or questionnaire that they used. But anyways, their primary outcome was percent of heavy drinking days after the intervention. And the primary contrast was at baseline versus weeks 5 to 12. The uh, number of participants in the study was actually 10. Uh, 70 patients were screened. Only 10 of them met criteria. There were four women and six men, and the average, uh, as I said before, was about 40 years old. And the mean alcohol dependence was about 15 years long. Eight out of 10 had evidence of physical dependence, meaning uh, some degree of tolerance or withdrawal, but none had withdrawal symptoms during treatment. So if you refer to figure one, um, this is a summary of participation and follow-up. 10 patients completed the first psilocybin session. Second uh, did the second session, 
Six of those received increased dosing, and one reported the complete mystical experience, so they stayed at the 0.3 milligrams per kilogram. Uh, nine completed follow-up. Uh, one, uh, one participant actually did not uh, continue in the study after the first treatment session at four weeks. So only nine are included in the treatment analysis, but all 10 are included in the psychosocial analysis. Uh, figure two goes on to show the physiologic effects during the first treatment session. So here's some of the real data. This is the 0.3 mg per kg and uh, the second session for the six participants who got the 0.4 mg per kg. Uh, as you can see, the systolic blood pressure was moderately increased. The heart rate did not change at all. Um, but they did measure the distance from ordinary reality, which peaked at 120 to 180 minutes. Um, the they also then have uh, put into table one the mean scores of self-reported experience at seven hours. So those are those questionnaires that they're giving them sort of at the end of the psilocybin intervention sessions. And what they're trying to detail in these two figures is that the second session really was not significantly different for subjects um, despite the increased dosing. So that's number one. Uh, then in figure three, they start to show some of the clinical outcomes. So percent heavy drinking days decreased during weeks five to 12. However, they also decreased during weeks one through four. And uh, if you remember, that is the uh, sort of uh, psychosocial intervention period only prior to the first psilocybin intervention. Um, so it also decreased with just uh, motivational interviewing and preparation uh, psychosocial therapy sessions. Um, the figure also shows that percent heavy drinking days and drinking days alone decreased over the entire course though. But there is no uh, statistical significance uh, that, are, um, that is shown within the first four weeks. After the first treatment session, however, the percent heavy drinking days and overall drinking days is significantly decreased. So you can see the slope in that line um, becomes pretty steep. Um, they tried to determine the relationship between acute effects and treatment response, um, but the acute effects are pretty variable, so they tried to explore the relationship between the intensity of those effects and the behavioral drinking changes. So that's uh, really what they're trying to show in Table 3, which is correlations between the summary measures of the intensity during the first treatment session and then these sort of short-term outcomes. Um, correlations were shown for acute intensity, so how intense that uh, session uh, was in terms of psychedelic effects and their change in behavior. They also uh, comment on craving and, and what they call self-efficacy. Um, just as an aside, they did report a couple adverse events. Uh, five reported a headache, one reported nausea, one reported GI distress, and one reported insomnia following all of the sessions, but nobody required meds. Um, so, Overall, the paper seems to suggest that subjects, despite having really highly variable responses um, to LSD, um, is it, the outcomes are consistent with this decades-old finding that uh, uh, LSD might impart some behavioral change on people with alcohol dependence. Um, much of the improvement started happening after the first treatment session, which again is after four weeks of psychosocial therapy, but um, they are proposing that there's a strong correlation between the intensity of the session and clinical outcomes, and that uh, change in drinking may be correlated with mystical quality of experience.
Um, I will say there are a couple limitations of the study. It's a very small sample size. Uh, there's no blinding. There's no control group, though. They do comment several times in the paper that they compared their population receiving this treatment, which was alcohol-dependent patients, with, uh, quote, normal volunteers at comparable doses in prior studies. And they found it to be numerically weaker in terms of the effects of the LSD. And they proposed that uh, also an older um, thought is that alcoholics may require larger doses of LSD to have a strong effect. Um, so they also uh, comment on that. They uh, also comment on a lack of biological verification of uh, alcohol use, uh, which, I, which I suppose uh, is a, just a separate point to obtaining a uh, BAC at every session. Um, so they couldn't completely confirm in every patient that uh, that they had alcohol dependence um, because it was self-reported. And then they also said that they can't really separate the effects of attention, uh, psychosocial treatment, and time. That was difficult for them when sort of the uh, behavioral and cognitive changes were actually occurring during treatment, at what point in this ma uh, maximum mystical experience that, um, that there was really a change in behavior that was long-lasting. Uh, um, so uh, just to end, overall takeaways of the paper are really that there may seem to be a relationship between intensity of response and clinical improvement uh, to support the concept that psilocybin may produce long-lasting benefits in uh, alcohol dependence disorder, but in the uh, context of appropriate uh, psychosocial interventions like motivational interviewing. Yeah, very good, very good. It's, you know, you know, I know it's a very, very small study. I mean, basically nine people, they screened a lot, and nine people out of ten finished the study. It would have been so much nicer, and they were screening all those people, most of whom were obviously highly motivated to stop drinking, um, if they had a even an unblinded placebo group that was just given 12 weeks of motivational behavioral therapy to see how many, you know, heavy drinking days they had. I mean, that would certainly have made it a little bit stronger. But they subjected these folks to, like, every possible score of, of wellness and psychological well-being that they could find, and they seemed to feel better about it at the end of 12 weeks of therapy. But uh, it's hard to say, not being blinded and being highly motivated to feel better and get well, what that means other than, like, they hopefully correctly called it a proof of concept that, Maybe this is something worth exploring in greater detail. I looked around. I hadn't really found any other bigger studies. Unfortunately, you hear that often requoted with this paper reference as, oh, look, it could help for alcoholism. And yeah, it may, but definitely needs to be, I think, proven on a much wider basis. And it's not like it would be hard to find people who have alcohol abuse disorder to enroll in something like this who would otherwise qualify, uh, even given heavy exclusionary uh, criteria. So we'll see how many uh, more papers on alcohol-related uh, illness uh, are published from this group or others. To change gears a little bit, this was sort of the biggest study and sort of the widest read um, journal that got, I think, most people's attention. It was literally just published. In fact, I think it came out after Election Day, and I wasn't aware of any. Um, it was published online on November 4th, and of course, Election Day was November 3rd, so nobody could have read this in great detail before they, they voted. Um, but it has the, the greatest um, 
I think, scientific appeal. So, Jen, I'm going to let you tell us about that one. Oh, Jen. Oh, John. Sorry, you got the wrong initials on it. Thank you. meeting, so they dropped out. 
and then subsequently another person dropped out between the first and second dose of session um, due to what they described as sleep issues. However, they had sleep issues prior to the study, uh, which they had disclosed. Um, so kind of looking at the overall study timeline, figure two kind of gives a good graphic representation. Um, and there's a baseline screening um, where they conduct um, all their screening criteria, and then they use this grid hammed uh, score, which looks at a depression rating scale, and they needed at least a score of 17 on that scale, which uh, signifies moderate depression. Um, 17 to 23 is moderate, greater than 24 is severe depression. Um, and the um, immediate treatment would get uh, eight hours of preparation meetings prior to um, getting the psilocybin. And then the first session um, was a dosing of psilocybin. 20 megs per 70 kilos, um, and you were brought into an office uh, that had a couch in a relaxed setting. Um, you would be given the drug. You had two facilitators there of uh, varying backgrounds and experiences uh, with, you know, maybe uh, researchers that had bachelor's degrees or even psychiatrists. Uh, so there's a myriad of backgrounds, but these were two facilitators that would be there to talk to you and help you through the experience. Um, you would be given glasses and shades, and then they would play music. Um, and, let, and the, the direction was for you to just um, experience uh, whatever experience you're having, just to kind of go with it and just uh, internally reflect. Um, they played all kinds of music. They actually published their music list in one of the supplemental materials, and it was quite interesting. Um, they chose things that were uh, classical guitar pieces, um, chorus pieces, uh, both in English and non-English languages. Um, they had yoga chanting, um, and then at the end, uh, you know, I don't know, it's, it's a really interesting choice, but right at the end, in the last three or five songs, they had both Enya and then Louis Armstrong, um, What a Wonderful World, or I believe it's the second, third, to last song. Um, so actually some words in there, maybe suggestive, um, you know, suggestive music. Um, and then after they had the first session, they would then have a second session, um, separate out. Um, similar thing, um, they did increase the dose um, if they could um, to a higher dose of psilocybin, the exact same protocol. And then subsequently, at week one and week four, after the two psilocybin sessions, they had a reevaluation of their depression scale, of their anxiety scale through multiple different, um, you know, validated scoring uh, mechanisms. These were all done on recorded. Uh, phone conversations and interrelated reliability was checked to make sure there was about that 85% so that the scores seemed to be correlated with different reviewers um, calling the people. Um, so that's the immediate treatment. And they had those two week one and week four post-treatment kind of depression scores. Um, they then compared that to the delayed treatment group who this whole time has been waiting to get the psilocybin. Um, and they were enrolled at the same time, and they had uh, very frequent calls, um, almost daily calls to check in, make sure they're not having an increased suicide risk because they're off their medications, and just kind of see how things are going. And then at weeks five and eight for them, which correlates with the post-treatment weeks one and four for the other group, they had the same scoring technique uh, for depression. And then a few weeks later, they got their two sessions and subsequently then had post session, post psilocybin session, weeks one and four, um, score. So, and, and we'll, we'll kind of talk about the, uh, the 
issues, I think, with that develop the, the way the study was developed. But ultimately, they um, went through and kind of compared all the groups um, between the immediate and the late treatment group. You have, you know, an average age of 46, 35, no significant statistical differences. One thing to note is these people were very, have been depressed for quite some time. The average years of time with depression was uh, between 19 and 23. Um, and the time in the current major depressive episode upon enrollment was the average was between 22 and 25 months for both groups. Um, so these are people who are having you know significant depression for quite some time. They've been dealing with it. Um, the results of the study, um, figure three, really kind of brings it home. Um, and it's a comparison of their grid Hamilton depression rating scale uh, scores between the delayed treatment and immediate treatment groups. So the delayed treatment access to control, that's their two scoring sessions prior to receiving psilocybin compared to the two scoring sessions after the immediate treatment group received the psilocybin. And um, there was a, a significant difference um, in the average scores. Um, so the um, mean um, scores were 22 at baseline. Um, and then uh, for the immediate treatment, they declined to 8.0 and 8.5. And that, that is greater than a 50% decrease in the, the number, which was their primary objective, um, in terms of the stratification within that scoring system. Um, as I mentioned before, if you have between 0 and 7, that is uh, minimal depression, 8 to 16 is mild depression, and then 17 to 23 is moderate and greater than 24 or equal to 24 severe. So these patients went from uh, the high end of moderate depression to the low end of mild depression um, in this scoring system compared to the delay treatment group, which um, had, at the baseline had an average of a score of 22.5 compared to the 29.9. And then at week uh, five and eight of pre-treatment, they had a score similar of 23.8. So this was kind of the, I think, the big thing where there was a significant reduction. Um, after the psilocybin session, 16 participants, so 67% at week, uh, after the first week of, um, after getting the treatment, had um, improvement, 26 significant improvements, so greater than 50% reduction in their grid hand score. Um, and at week four, 71% of participants in both groups had um, clinically significant improvement, um, which I think was pretty, uh, you know, pretty fascinating. Um, there were secondary depression and anxiety outcomes, and they showed a similar pattern of results um, with significant differences between the conditions across um, both conditions based on entry into the study. Um, there were some events within the study, so some adverse effects, uh, similar to what Courtney mentioned, there were a mild increases in blood pressure, um, and then there were um, transient headaches mentioned in a third of the patients, um, and then there were some um, kind of uh, emotional effects that were statistically uh, notable after the study was concluded. Um, so after they received the psilocybin, they also filled out additional scoring things mystical experience questionnaire 30 um, and it looked like there was having had a complete mystical experience was not significantly associated with changes in depression scores which is interesting to note you did not have to have a very significant uh, mystical experience to actually have an improvement in your depression score 
correlation with having the highest score on the mystical experience. So it seems that if you had a higher score on that questionnaire, you did have a um, bigger decrease. Um, so it doesn't seem to be significantly uh, associated. Um, and then the uh, adverse events that most uh, of the subjects felt um, were um, feeling like crying. Um, so 92% had that across the first and second session. Um, sadness, some emotional or physical suffering. Um, and again, these, these were transient, but these were right after the event, feeling their body like they wanted to shake. And some feelings of grief were the most common. Um, that was 60% uh, as well. Um, uh, in terms of anxiety, 56% felt those across the two groups, and 40% felt panic. Um, feelings of despair, also 58%. So it seemed, seemed like there were some kind of adverse events afterwards. Um, that's kind of all of their data. Um, so kind of looking at all of this um, together, so, you know, they had a significant decrease in their... Um, in their grid ham score, uh, in their in their depression severity score, um, comparing that to current uh, treatment modalities, uh, the the decrease um, was 2.5 times greater than psychotherapy alone, and four point or four times greater than uh, pharmacotherapy alone. Now we know that pharmacotherapy plus psychotherapy combined have a greater effect, so there's a synergistic effect. Um, but just comparing kind of all of these single modalities to each other, this to have the greatest effect. Um, some, you know, issues I have with this study, you know, they, there's a few things that they kind of did that are confounding. So within their study, they effectively did have psychotherapy on top of their uh, psilocybin treatment. These patients were getting called frequently, they were getting check-ins, um, and they had um, two facilitators at each psilocybin session of varying backgrounds, um, you know, kind of talking them through that. So I think that is kind of something that can bounce the data a little bit. Um, other, other issues that we do, I, you have, you know, is it's a very short follow-up, so four weeks after you got your second dose, um, and then no further follow-up after that. Um, it was it was a small study, um, and, you know, in terms of the music, you know, it, no one studied what music is most effective. I did like that they actually published their list, but they also did have some words in the music, which could be considered like a, you know, a therapy tape almost, um, if it, like suggestive thinking. Um, with Louis Armstrong, um, which I think would be, you know, it'd be good to have that further study. Um, and then, you know, one thing I was kind of just thinking about this whole uh, study itself is that they, they compared two separate groups to each other, but we know that they're within, you know, the disease spectrum of major depressive disorder. Some people don't respond to therapy at all, and some people are resistant, and some people respond quite well. So I, I, I wish that they had actually included um, a pre-assessment in the immediate group as well, and kind of compare it to compare the pre-assessment to the post-assessment to each other. So you're comparing the same people um, to kind of determine whether or not someone who is a responder will have a, a good outcome. Um, they did that in the second group, but they could have done that in the first group, which would have been great, um, as opposed to comparing two separate groups who may have responders and non-responders within. Um, but overall, very interesting data. Um, I think something that's perpetuating kind of this use for, and you know, although it was published November 4th, I, I think that this is something that everyone's very interested about related to the uh, ballot measure. Yeah, no, thanks, uh, John. That's a great uh, summary of this study. It was 
it was interesting. They used to, you know, the classic rating scores that we've seen when we reviewed like SSRIs and SNRIs uh, before the Hamilton depression scores, pretty standard use. Uh, the design was kind of interesting. It was like they compared the treated group to the sort of treated on the waiting list to get the actual active ingredient group uh, as far as an outcome. But I still think it was impressive, even though, again, a small limited number size pilot study at best that showed a 67% or two-thirds you know, efficacy in the short term um, compared to what we often see with people on SSRIs and SNRIs, which maybe gets 50% at best um, in short or long term. Um, so um, again, the kind of science we'd like to see and like to see more of and like to see larger groups and more diverse groups. Obviously, these are highly selective individuals by the time they parsed it down to the you know the couple of dozen people that they were going to study, um, but it's a step in the right direction I think for for looking at this. Um, and again, the drug probably is safe as SSRIs. People get headaches, people get shakes, which obviously could or could not be serotonin syndrome. I was wondering about that when I read that line, um, um, but um, or it could be an emotional shakiness. It's hard to say. So the last uh, group that we want to address, uh, that was addressed with a, a larger study, was those people who have um, cancer or some other life-threatening disease and are obviously both depressed and anxious about their life and what's going to happen uh, with them. And somewhat in the ads that were promoted for approving psilocybin, there was sort of a, a bit of a heart tugging at this issue to, again, sort it out with a study that was done. Um, I'm going to turn this one over to Jen this time. Um, so the study that I reviewed um, was taken from the Journal of Psychopathology um, in 2016. And I thought I would start by getting pretty simple and sustained with And the question of anxiety, patients with life threatening cancer around my life, life. Um, and as Jane alluded to, um, something I learned just yesterday so was that depression is actually an independent risk factor of early death of cancer patients. Um, and so they were looking, um, given what we know about the uh, capacity for some hallucinogens to alter thoughts and emotions, um, to see if um, this uh, if psilocybin um, could help um, in this patient population improves some of their emotional and depression anxiety. Um, and it was building off of um, two other uh drug like people controlled trials uh which I will have in a much smaller patient group that um for only twelve patients but um did uh, have life threatening illnesses in um, and so what they were looking for um, was to do a double blind crossover of very low dose psilocybin, which would be like the placebo, and moderately high dose psilocybin um, in uh, the patient group. So uh, they initially screened um, over 500 patients, and 56 were included in the final study group. Um, after a second uh, round of screening, um, 51. Um, randomized group 
51 had what uh, was considered a potentially life-threatening cancer diagnosis, um, 65% of the current metastatic disease. Um, all of the patients carried a DSM-4 diagnosis. Um, there's quite a bit of variability in those diagnoses, but then um, adjustment disorder with anxiety, chronic adjustment disorder with mixed anxiety and immune to chronic disorder, generalized anxiety disorder, major depressive disorder, and some dual diagnoses. Um, and it was a fairly complicated study designed while trying what the important um, There were two sessions that were done um, in the, in the uh, study. One was a low versus high dose, um, and then they looked at the extreme effects of this at various follow-up time points. Um, so the uh, first group um, had uh, received the low dose and then, um, about one month later, um, had their second session for high dose and vice versa. Um, there were session monitors, as um, some of the previous studies have mentioned, where um, the patients were met with the monitors before each of their sessions and then also at follow-up sessions. And the monitor's roles were basically to um, understand the patient's um, steps of their life, establish a lot of support, prepare them for the side of sessions. They were there to be non-directive and supportive during the sessions and after the sessions. They were there to help the patients um, focus on the feelings and thoughts that they had um, after the sessions. Um, the side sessions um, were conducted in a the pre-designed room, um, patients who were uh, using uh, cannabis products uh, were asked to not use them for each hours prior to session. Um, everybody got a capsule um, that had either the logo or the in it, um, and then they were given like eye masks out and music headphones for sound that the hit study, um, and sort of to focus on session. Um, the study was uh, attempted to wind the monitors um, to sort of minimize expectancy, kind of in the ways that we're hearing about with some of the clinical trials um, around the vaccine right now of sort of knowing uh, whether or not you got uh, the placebo or the vaccine based on the symptoms that you get. Um, the monitors were uh, attempted to be blinded by saying that they um, could be in a session with a patient um, who um, had gotten a very low dose or very high dose or something in the middle, and that their sensitivity might vary, um, and um, they were uh, sort of given very vague um, descriptions of some of the procedures that were uh, happening, um, other than saying that the patients would be getting better um, the choice that the patients were given, so the high dose initially was uh, prescribed as uh, 30 milligrams uh, for, for 72 years, and the patient was strapped down to 22 milligrams after uh, two, two of the first three participants had had those effects. And then the low dose group was initially started at 3 milligrams uh, and dropped down to 1 milligram for 72 years um, after. Some of the study participants actually had um, uh, 
and this extra massage milligram goes um, and goes to confirm that three milligrams have not um, be in an active placebo. So most of the patients either got a uh, 22 milligram dose or oh, a low high dose or one milligram of their low dose. Um, the patients underwent uh, sort of standard cardiovascular monitoring, heart rate, blood pressure, um, and uh, then the monitors um, completed uh, ratings or scorings of the participants' behaviors and mood during individual sessions. Um, the, after each of the sessions, the participants were asked to complete four questionnaires at time point seven hours after they had received the psilocybin. Um, then they were followed up at various time intervals after the session. So after a session, they completed four questionnaires at seven hours. Five weeks after that, they completed another set of questionnaires. Um, and then six months later, they completed a final set of Um, the questionnaires, so they used a variety of questionnaires, um, which for me was a little bit hard to interpret because they're using mm. all these different scales and uh, varieties of questionnaires, and they're picking some as their primary outcomes and some as secondary outcome scales. The ones that they used um, for their primary outcomes um, as like clinician-rated measures of depression is this uh, grid ham for, um, and then this ham A with a psi A score, um, and they assessed a clinically significant response um, as greater than 50% decrease in a measure relative to the baseline, and then remission was defined as a greater than 50% decrease relative to the baseline and a score of less than seven on one of these two um, uh, clinician scales. Like I said, then they have a whole slew of secondary outcome measures based on a variety of other um, different skills. Um, so 15 other different skills. Yeah. Um, but but those, were, those were similar to the ones in John, John's uh, study. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, another component of the study that was kind of interesting is that they these um, community observers, so these are family members from their work colleagues, that they did structured telephone interviews with. Um, and they asked um, the community member um, to rate the psilocybin recipient um, behaviors and attitudes on a 10 point scale on 13 different items. Um, and they did a rating session sort of at the baseline um, and then over um, follow-up assessments after they had received the psilocybin um, to get sort of a another person's perspective um, uh, more, I guess, um, exposed to the, the mood changes that may have um, resulted from the, the treatment protocol. Um, so that's the spirituality measures. Um, at baseline at five weeks after the second session follow-up time. Um, they looked at the persistent effect questionnaire um, at the, also five weeks after each session in a six-month follow-up time, focusing on three questions um, for the participant. How personally meaningful was the experience? 
to what degree um, in the experience, sorry, indicates the degree to which the experience is spiritually significant, and then do you believe the experience in your contemplation of it has led to change in your well-being or that's um, and then there's a variety of statistical analyses um, for uh, all of these various uh, skills and scores. Um, so, going through the results, um, I'm doing my best to get ahead of them. Protocol. Um, so, table one um, is just a demographic specific approach. So there are about 25 patients in each group. Like I said, the total of 51 participants overall. I think the things that stood out to me were um, the average age of the patients is around 50. And um, not like a super older um, patient group, um, not a young patient group. Uh, patients were primarily white. Um, patients were quite educated, um, at least. You know, 50% had a, a postgraduate education, with another 45% had a college education. Um, about a little less than half I reported um, using uh, hallucinogen stuff. Um, so, sort of a little bit of a self selecting group here. Um, and about 50% reported recent use of cannabis. Uh, I think it's sort of just when you think about later the generalizability of the study results, um, you know, you have a very selective patient group who has, you know, a significant number of them have active use of hallucinogens, um, have active use of some other um, substances, um, and they're fairly educated. So it's a very um, homogenous group. Um, so Table two um, is looking at um, some of the comparators between the low and the high dose groups. Um, you can see, um, as in John's study, um, you have an elevation of blood pressure uh, with a higher dose, a little bit of a higher elevation of heart rate. Um, in terms of uh, monitor ratings, um, the maximum possible score for monitor ratings is four, except for visual effects besides those, which is two. Um, that the monitors um, rated sort of in a higher dose group, um, a higher overall effect, um, a higher uh, distance from ordinary reality, a higher peace harm score, um, a higher spontaneous motor activity, which to me was like kind of like about serotonin toxicity. <laughs> with the higher dose. Um, uh, yeah, so just um, the table is very distracting because of all the stars on it, but um, you can just see that the higher dose groups, I think, um, the takers of the higher dose groups have higher session monitor ratings um, compared to the lower dose groups. Um, table three looks at the participant ratings on the questionnaires that were done seven hours after they got their either high or low dose self-rating um, of the individuals. Um, and again, um, on a lot of these scales, the, the takeaway point is that um, you have a higher score um, with the higher doses compared to um, the lower doses. Uh, sort of the big takeaway that I 
um, for table four, um, so this is the, um, these are my results. They uh, separated, you know, these scales that they used and they uh, separated them into what was designated as conservative criteria for demonstrating effective psilocybin and um, not cells uh, that do not fulfill conservative criteria for demonstrating an effective psilocybin. Um, I think the, the way to assess this is that um, conservative criteria for saying that psilocybin affected the outcomes um, were those that showed uh, like between group difference at the session, the first session, and then a between group difference at session one and session two and the low dose group. Um, they sort of saying that they, the ones where between the low dose group, uh, sessions one and two, they noticed a difference is sort of how they categorize them as conservative for fulfilling criteria. It's a little bit vague to me, um, mostly because if you look at table four, which is the ones that fulfilled the conservative criteria, and then table five is the ones that didn't fulfill the conservative criteria, um, you know, it's just, it seems like it's the ones that are statistically significant uh, fall into the moving category and the ones that are significant fall into the other one, um, which maybe is what, how they, you know, in terms of that between group difference, how they assess it, but it just makes me a little bit, I don't know, skeptical, I guess, um, in terms of highlighting them as clinically conservative. And if they live in something that's like conservative criteria, it lends maybe a little bit more credibility to these. Um, but it's a fairly small patient sample, and so statistical significance might be not the best way to sort of use this category. Anyway, I digress. Um, uh, I think the, the things that I noticed and um, if you're looking at the paper, um, people for sort of, you know, um, displayed a little bit um, better in figure uh, um, in terms of the number of the data, but sort of what it shows is that in the high dose first group, you have a, a much greater drop um, in a lot of these anxiety mood and depression scores um, or a much greater rise, like a much deeper rise um, in the quality of life or death, death acceptance scores um, if you got the first dose, if you got the high dose first, um, and then it sort of has this like plateau that maintains as opposed to the low dose group where it's a little bit more of this like gradual rise up towards either of those plateaus. Um, sort of, you know, suggesting that getting a high dose first is, you know, going to get you to feeling better on a lot of these courses, you know, and then maybe having this maintenance of a low dose will sort of keep you there as opposed to maybe a slower rise up to that point. Um, but overall, at the six-month period, both groups sort of get to the same, uh, relatively same scores. Uh, it's just a, a matter of how quickly they are um, for table six, um, these were the two scores that I um, mentioned earlier that they 
were their primary outcomes of like a clinically significant response. Um, and you can just see that at six months um, in the high dose groups, um, there's like an 80% of patients who suggest they have a clinical response uh, in high dose first group and a between 60 and 70% um, that have symptom remission. Um, again, in the high dose second group, you have still quite a high clinical response, but maybe a little bit less. Um, table seven um, is the community observer data. Um, again, that's where they interviewed family members or friends about the observation of the patients, and um, they give um, pretty high scores um, for patients um, at the post session and then at six months, um, suggesting that you know these. Uh, feelings um, of improved mood and improved anxiety um, are sustained um, and sort of noticeably sustained uh, or noticeable by other people around them who are interviewed. Um, and then uh, table eight, um, like I said, is sort of looking at the six-month follow-up on the high dose and asking people about their attitudes, their mood changes, and those three questions I pointed out, how personally meaningful was the experience, how spiritually significant was it, and did it change your sense of well-being or life satisfaction? Um, and if you look at the patients who got the high dose, um, I think it was the high dose, or six months after their second session, um, they um, show, again, that they have sort of the sustained um, effect and sustained higher scores. Um, after the high dose of psilocybin. Um, so overall, um, a lot of the other uh, figures that are in the paper are just um, uh, uh, graphical displays of the tables that I um, discussed. Um, so overall, I think um, the big takeaways for me um, that I thought were really interesting were that, um, were that I definitely understood the sort of immediate, you know, effects uh, following the, the doses and the treatment, um, and maybe even the sustained effects at the five-week follow-up. I thought the sustained effects at six-month follow-up was kind of interesting, um, and I wasn't sure if it was, um, is it an effect of the psilocybin, or is it an effect of asking people about positive experience that they had that then triggers them, like it's almost like a recall bias component where it triggers them to then answer some of these questions in a positive way because they're recalling the positive experience that they had um, and saying like, oh yeah, you know, I do feel better now, and it, but maybe some of that is triggered by them recalling the event. Um, so I, you know, I think the, a, the family member data lends it, uh, and observation data lends itself as being, you know, discrediting that, you know, recall bias idea of like, you know, they're noticing perhaps a more positive and sustained effect at six months out, but um, just thinking about how it would have a sustained effect for six months um, when they're not mm -hmm. continuing to get treatment and they're just getting too isolated doses is just a, a novel. Um, sort of thought and idea, but it's interesting data and it 
certainly is a group of patients that we, you know, want to try and, and be better for, um, particularly in this very challenging, you know, period of their uh, yeah, great. Thanks, Jen. I apologize. It was quite oh, it's quite good feedback. Turn your mic off. Oh, thanks. I was going to say, uh, appreciate that. Um, There's a long paper uh, with lots and lots of tables and studies. I think they tried to kind of give this low dose, which is like a milligram to three milligrams, versus what was the typical dose that was used in the other two studies, which is about thirty milligrams for an average adult or around that same 0.3 milligram per kilogram that was used in the first study. Um, so um, they didn't quite do it because I think it's hard to do a blinded study because you feel the effects of it, but even those low doses created some kind of an effect. Um, so it's very hard to say, you know, what the, whether that was truly blinded or something else was going on there. Um, Again, pilot study is also from the same group as the second study that uh, John King, the John Hopkins group that's doing a lot of research in this. Again, suggestive that maybe there's some uh, help here uh, above and beyond what we usually have to offer, um, but a, a, an area to keep our eye on. And I think especially this, because I think this is kind of one of the reasons why people are saying we don't have that much except for comfort therapy and talk therapy and groups, you know, therapy for people who are depressed because they have, um, you know, metastatic cancer, um, and maybe this helps. And what, I agree with you. I don't know how a one or two session of this sustains that for six months, but something about it maybe does. Um, any other thoughts from any, anybody else? Um, I think we're, we're in the probably infancy of the study of psilocybin for all of these things. I'm sure it's going to get tried for other things that we haven't talked about as well, and we'll just have to keep our our, our eyes out for what research unveils, um, and we'll see where the group in Oregon goes as far as their, who gets to use it. I would say procedurally, if they try to do it the same way, I mean, you have to devote a whole eight hours in your office to essentially watching these folks, uh, but we'll see what happens. Yeah, I'm not sure how that original husband and wife psychotherapist group envisioned it. They sort of implied they were kind of doing it, perhaps, or studying it. I wasn't sure from some of the background history or coverage in the media of them. Um, but, yeah, it seems like, according to these more intensive studies, they watch these people for eight hours with two you know, therapists in the room, which is pretty uh, manpower-intensive uh, way to deliver therapy. But uh, we'll have to see what the long-term outcomes are. You know, it, it, can it be shortened? Can you use lower doses? Can there be different ways of administering it? Interesting to see the durability of the outcomes being inspired. This one treatment lasts people for a month. Mm -hmm. 
Yes, yes. Like I say, I, I, I don't believe we should sort of decide to legalize or not legalize drugs via the ballot box, but in fact we didn't do that. We essentially said this is worthy of a oversight group to determine where at least the state of Oregon goes next. Um, they may be a little bit premature in their understanding of the data, but they have two more years to kind of get to that point. We'll see what pans out in those two more years. Anyway, thanks for everybody joining in and participating and reviewing the articles that we sent out. Um, I'll put them available. I'll try to check on the status of the recording, and we'll be back maybe in a few more months. i got to figure out how to turn the recording off, and we'll all be all set here.